Welcome to our newest episode of the Lebanese Physician Podcast. And today we'll be talking about malnutrition, mostly in hospitalized patients in Lebanon. And our guest today is Christella Wajan, who is currently a clinical dietitian at St. George University Hospital. And she's an ICU nutritionist. She's doing currently a PhD in Geneva. And she graduated initially from the American University of Beirut. One piece of data that I got from her too, which is interesting, is that she's one of the people who established the order of nutritionists and dietitians in Lebanon, and she's currently general secretary for the order at this point. So she has a lot of influence on different protocols related to nutrition. Lebanon. Welcome, Christelle, to the podcast. Thanks so much. Just uh, want first to thank you for the opportunity to talk about my nutrition, and uh, because it's a it's a topic very close to my heart, and it was. The whole reason I started, I, I, the PhD is not in my career path. My nutrition is so. This is how things happen. And second, I'm not a physician myself. I'm a dietitian. But so when you first contacted me, I was very happy to hear that there is a Lebanese physician podcast. And by curiosity, I was asking around the colleagues in the hospital. I asked them, do you know the Lebanese? Of course, you know it. And we listen to it always. So just to tell you this. That's <laughs> so, good to hear. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, so now you have a new follower and I hope you will have more dietitians because I think it's very interesting to have this multidisciplinary approach in dealing specifically with patients. And I think the objective of what we're going to talk about today is the importance also of not having only dietitians on board when we have a malnourished patient. Everyone should be involved. Right, right. And that's what I try to do with my podcast is always try to, even though it's called the Lebanese Physicians Podcast, but as, as you start hearing the episode, there's a lot of episodes that were done with non-physicians, healthcare workers, because I think it's important. Everybody's important. Uh, Everybody. And so so basically, this study, we, we can talk about it in a bit, but the study about malnutrition in inpatients in Lebanon came about, I guess, as part of your was it master's or PhD journey? No, it's my it's my PhD journey. Okay, yes, exactly. And yeah, yeah as we embark and talk about this study, but I, I want to ask you first to tell us, because not everybody knows this, what's the definition of malnutrition? And are there varying degrees of malnutrition? Yes. So by definition, malnutrition is when a nutrition status is not appropriate. So it can be over or under nutrition. But when we talk about malnutrition in a hospitalized or in a community setting, usually we mean an undernourished patient. So uh, biologically speaking, it's a patient who is eating much less than what his body needs. And that's why he will rely on his body reserves, mainly muscles and fat. And this is where he starts losing them. We, we say muscle and fat wasting, and we have malnutrition. It's very important to mention that there are different types of malnutrition, and this is a big ambiguity in healthcare because the malnutrition we know that in the community that we are more aware of it is what we call the starvation-related malnutrition. It's simply because the person is not eating enough. But when we are in a hospital setting or in a healthcare setting, this is where we talk about what is mentioned in many societies as disease-related malnutrition. So the person we have in front of us is losing weight, not only because he's not eating enough, but because his disease is causing an inflammatory process in his body. And this is where we differentiate between 
acute disease-related malnutrition and chronic disease-related malnutrition. So it depends, is it an acute disease or chronic disease? And when we talk about the uh, malnutrition as diagnosis, if you want to go to international classification of disease, even in the new version of the WHO, the ICD-11, we don't find any classification of disease-related malnutrition. We have Pachacor, marasmus, protein algae malnutrition, or reflecting the malnutrition we find in a community setting. But we don't have a specific coding for the malnutrition related specifically because the patient has a certain disease causing. So this is one of the big aims now of a big group that I worked with them in my research called the Global Leadership Initiative on Malnutrition, known as GLIM. And they are trying to find a unified diagnosis of malnutrition because it's not that clear. Some, some, some physicians may tell you it's a low BMI. Some other may tell you it's a weight. Some other may tell you it's a person not eating enough. But in the hospital and the healthcare setting, in a hospitalized patient, there should be a unified diagnosis. And this is one of the, the main drive of the study being done in Lebanon is using this new diagnostic criteria in defining malnutrition. So basically, just to be clear for what we're discussing right now is we're discussing malnutrition in patients who are admitted to the hospital, i.e. patients who have chronic diseases and develop malnutrition related to that and not community-based malnutrition. Yes, exactly. So it's a malnutrition in adult hospitalized patients. Of course, we see it also in pediatric, but the first phase of the study was targeting adults. Pediatric also is another very important population but also they have their own diagnosis of malnutrition and we differentiate in pediatrics between a malnutrition due to community or what we call starvation-related malnutrition or with disease-related malnutrition, even in pediatrics. So how did you decide to conduct, I guess, a study and what prompted it? So the study came after I have working in, as a clinical dietitian in the hospital for more than 15 years. And uh, the, when I first started working in the hospital, I noticed that there is no nutrition screening. And uh, it's not only in our hospital, it's in all Lebanese hospitals. So we don't know this patient who's being admitted to the hospital, what is his nutritional status. And there is a lack of a clear role of a dietitian in a hospital. So what dietitian do in a hospital? Is she only there to prepare a menu for patients? Is she only there to give education? What about patients who are catabolic, malnourished, and all these related factors? So we started working on a nutrition screening system in the hospital, and it was a very nice uh, pilot study we did just to see if we use a screening. Will we have number of patients who are malnourished even upon admission? It was a small abstract. I was invited in the American Society of Panther and Nutrition back in 2018 to talk about this pilot study we did. And it showed really very high rates in our small hospital um, community of patients being malnourished. And when I dig further, there are no real data of the Middle East in general. So I didn't publish it yet. It's going to be published uh, month, uh, hopefully uh, two to three months from now. It's a systematic review I did on what are the studies done on malnutrition and hospital patients in the Amro region even. Do they do it? It's very rare. We don't have data about it, and it's very important to know because if we want to do a change, I always believe change should be from bottom up, okay? We need to show to 
whoever is responsible, it starts by hospital administrator, by national policies, by regional policies, that really we have a lot of malnourished patients in our hospital. And it is very interesting to see that we may say that, oh, you, because maybe you're a physician too, I'm a dietitian in a hospital, but this is well known that are malnourished, but no, it is not. There are still worldwide initiatives to push for diagnosis, to push for screening in the hospital. So it is not yet a well uh, defined intervention that we do. And exactly, I, I agree with you 100% because you cannot push for change if you don't have data. And data is very important to be able to push for change in these situations. And you can't depend, let's say, on data that's coming from the West or from other countries. You want to depend on data that is specific to your culture or community. I saw, like, when I was reading through your article, there's different criteria, right, to define hospital-based malnutrition. So yes. what are the criteria that you used for your study? As I started with our discussion, first, that there is not yet a defined coding in the ICGs because there is no diagnostic tool for malnutrition in hospitals. So we have many tools used, but the newly proposed tool, it's a GLIM criteria, standing for Global Leadership Initiative on Malnutrition. They first started this task force in 2016. It was a global task force. And they come up from different studies, what can be an easy and well-defined diagnostic tool. So the tool that we use is the GLIM criteria. Of course, what we did first is a screening. So we did a screening using a tool called the nutrition risk screening. And there are so many nutrition screening tools that are valid. So you don't need to use this tool specifically. Any tool is okay. So as you know, screening adjusts to highlight who's at risk. Then the dietitian should come to do her thorough assessment to make sure that this patient at risk is really malnourished. So the tool we use have a high specificity and sensitivity, and we found a very good correlation between the screening tool and the diagnostic tool we use because we diagnose even all patients, not only the ones screened at risk. And the GLIM criteria is divided into two main parts, what we call the phenotopic and the etiologic criteria. The phenotopic criteria are based on three, BMI, weight loss, and there are specific uh, cut of points for BMI because with older people, we allow for higher BMI, uh, weight loss, and uh, muscle wasting. And if a patient has one phenotopic criteria, we can look for the etiologic criteria as a second step. For the phenotopic criteria, BMI and weight loss are very easy to collect. What's difficult is the muscle mass. And what we try to do in the study is to show the practicality of easy tools. Because first, we live in a country with minimal resources, specifically now. And second, even in the States, even in Europe, they do not have the sophisticated machines to measure muscle mass at a clinical practice that easy. It's not an easy practice. So what we try to use is a simple anthropometric measurement of mid-upper arm muscle circumference that is validated by a hand grip strength. This is a hand grip dynamometer that a patient can use. It's a very cheap tool where you only ask the patient to pull on it. It will show the muscle strength. So if the bones are low, it shows that the patient has muscle wasting. Of course, it's not the gold standard of measuring muscle mass, but what we try to recommend in our study that's an easy cheap tool that can be used to all hospitalized patients at any setting, whatever resources are available. And once the phenotopic criteria is there, 
you can have the etiologic criteria that is based either on food intake or on inflammation present because of the disease. And we measured CRP specifically. CRP is, a, is an inflammatory marker that is measured routinely in a hospitalized patient. So if the patient has one phenotopic criteria and one etiologic criteria that is either a low food intake and there are cut-off points for it or a high inflammation, then the patient is diagnosed with malnutrition. And the severity of the diagnosis is based on the phenotopic criteria. So depending on how extensive is the BMI, how extensive is the mid-upper arm muscle circumference cut-off point, we can say that our patient is moderately or severely malnourished. Great. So this is the glimpse criteria, and we try to show that it is very practical. It is very valid, and as I will, we will mention later on in our discussion, that it also has been correlated with length of stay, showing that it can predict a worsening outcome in patients uh, during their hospital stay. The glimpse criteria has been used in other studies that were done outside of the Middle East area, right? Yes, it has been. It was proposed the first time in 2018. And with it, in 2019, they published a recommendation how to use it in study to validate this work. So, of course, it's not, we don't have extensive research on it, but we still we, we have a big number already, and there are already two, three systematic review published on the use of CLIM criteria, and they have been used in many patient populations. So, in, even in oncology and geriatric, in gastro, so it has been used already in different, but uh, they still need a lot of studies. They are asking for more and more studies to be done to validate. Can you discuss with us like the context where the study was done? I'm sure it was done at St. George University Hospital, but which other hospitals and how many patients yes. were in the study? Yes. So we had a lot of uh, troubles with the study because the pandemic happened and the research was, it was not as easy as before pandemic, so this is one. So we did a, a sample um, a size calculation. Uh, it was a WHO uh, sample size calculator was used. And according to the patient, it was uh, based on the patient's hospital admission and stratified according to the different districts. So, so we can have patients not only from one district, based on the whole population of Lebanon. What is missing, and it is one limitation of our study, that only private hospitals were included because public hospitals are still till now not allowed to have research in them after the pandemic. And on top of it came the economic crisis of Lebanon where public hospitals are in very big trouble now and it's being very hard to do any research in them. So we base our study based on private hospital admissions based on Lebanese population, and we came up that, we, uh, that the minimum sample size needed was 320. We included 343 patients divided into the five districts of Lebanon. How did we choose the other hospital? It was uh, honestly by convenience. Like we know hospitals who are ready to collaborate on these studies were included, but how did we choose the patients in this hospital? It was done by randomization and open admission. So. The hospitals included, I would like to thank them, was, of course, the hospital where I work in Beirut, St. George Hospital, a hospital uh, called uh, Al-Munla in Tripoli uh, that represented the north area, a hospital uh, called Rai. It was between not only in Saida, it was, it was between Saida and Tir to uh, represent the different population of the south. 
And we have Sakhay Kar was done in Mount Lebanon. And we have Khuri that was done in, in Ba'a Bika. And Bika was a very hard area to enter in the Ba'al Bak hospitals because they don't allow easy data collection from their patients. So we have these five. How many patients were picked from each hospital? It was based against how much hospital admissions are annually in every district. Of course, the bigger sample came from Beirut because, as we know, Beirut has the highest hospital admissions according to the latest national health statistics we have. So what time period was it conducted? And I know it started like directly before COVID, then COVID hit, right? Yes. Right. So it started, we aimed to start before COVID and we got all the ethical approval from, because our ethical approval came from AUB and University of Geneva because it was a collaborative project. But the COVID hit, so everything was stopped. So we waited and then we applied for another IRB. We got the approval in March 2021 till October 2021. So we tried to make it as much as we can in a short time of period. So like uh, we finished from one district, we moved to the other district with no rest. So it can reflect the same time period. So it was considered a cross-sectional study. So what were the results, I guess? of the prevalence of malnutrition hospitalized patients across Lebanon and number two, uh, across the different districts. And then how does it compare to uh, malnutrition rates outside of Lebanon? Yes. So it's interesting to know that it is a high prevalence rate. Of course, if you look at the paper, you can see we have two prevalence rates. It's not really two prevalence rates. It's one this is the, pay, the number of patients considered at risk with the screening tool, and then the number of patients diagnosed with malnutrition. So the NRS, that is the number of patients considered at risk, with the, they were 31.2%, and the number who were considered malnourished, they were 35.7%. So if you notice, the screening tool predicted a lower rate of malnutrition than when we did the real diagnosis. The rate of 5.57% is really high because I work a lot with the Ministry of Public Health and policy makers there, and you know how hard it is to work with people in general. So I don't like to use the percentage. What I like to use, 50%, it means one in every patient admitted to the hospitals in Lebanon is malnourished. So just to, to really understand the magnitude of it. One in every how many patients? Because I think it cut just... On one, in, uh, sorry, one in every three patients. Good. It's just turning around in English around the percentage just to make a big impact out of it. So if we want to use the diagnostic criteria because it's the real diagnosis of malnutrition, the prevalence rate will be 35.57%. In the scientific language and percentage language, talk policy, Economics, we would like to use that one in every three patients admitted to hospital Is it the worldwide prevalence? Yes, it is. Okay, so it is very close to the worldwide prevalence, but we don't have a new worldwide prevalence. What we have from recent studies done back in 2010, it is around 35%, 32% worldwide, with the higher percentage being found in Latin America, we don't have studies in Africa and hospitals. We have mainly in Latin America. I mean, in countries of lower socioeconomic status, we are like them. In countries like K, it is around 20%. And like US, it's also around 25%.
similar but high. The highest percentage was found in Beirut. You may say Beirut is the capital. Again, I'm not talking about community malnutrition. We're talking about hospital malnutrition. And we know that the hospitals in Beirut, they are the big hospitals, the big university hospitals are concentrated in Beirut. And usually patients who have complicated cases are admitted to Beirut. And the highest urbanization is in Beirut also. So people go also to the hospital that is not from where they are origin of, mainly where they live, so next to them. And it was followed by Mount Lebanon, by North, and then by Deca. Yeah, so basically in Beirut, you can't say that all these patients are coming from the Beirut district area. They could have come from the North or from the South and were admitted exactly. to that spaces to the Beirut hospitals. Exactly. Because the exactly. Beirut hospitals are more like tertiary care centers. Uh, yes. In that case. How does this malnutrition impact the healthcare system? Does it increase cost? Does it increase mortality? How does the yes. healthcare system in Lebanon? Okay. So in our study specifically, we did measure the association of uh, malnutrition with hospital stays specifically. And we did a multiple logistic regression accordingly. What predicted most the length of hospital stay? To be very honest, we had mortality data, but they were not significant. So they were removed. Yani we had we didn't have high mortality data. So we didn't have patients dying in, during our study time, at least because uh, intensive care unit patients were excluded, uh, cardiac care patients were excluded because they are usually not uh, in a good state to do a questionnaire and so on. So with lens of hospital stay specifically, it has been very clear that patients, and we, we use the cutoff point of five days. So the cutoff point of five days, because it was in the mean um, mean length of stay, it was considered the median in our length of stay data. So having a cutoff point of five days, what was associated with patients having a higher length of stay means more than five days, where patients who had malnutrition according to GLIM criteria, and more specifically who had a low mid-upper arm muscle circumference and low hundred strength. And the muscle strength also directly was associated with muscle mass and low muscle mass was directly associated with longer length of stay. And in the multiple logistic regression, taking other variables into account, like even taking the underlying disease, the comorbid disease, how many home medication they are taking, what other diseases they may have, the only significant predictor of increased level of stay was malnutrition diagnosis. This is what we try to show in our study, at least, that malnutrition in Lebanon is associated with an increased length of stay. What? So what do other studies show? First, length of hospital stay is a direct economic factor. Okay, so economic healthcare cost is directly driven by the length of hospital stay. So it increases the healthcare cost. This is one. It increases, of course, other complications. And it is very important to mention that in other studies, malnutrition has been associated with increased mortality. Again, like uh, like we we showed too, increased length of stay with decreased wound healing, with increased surgery complication, even increased um, uh, nosocomial infection. So yes, malnutrition has a high impact on uh, on the quality of life of patients and on the healthcare costs due to the complication they are doing. And it's also, I forgot to mention that in our study, malnutrition was also directly associated significantly with hospital readmission. 
So the patients who were malnourished had a higher previous hospital readmission than patients who are nourished. So showing that these patients are prone to enter more and more into the hospital due to their malnutrition status. I mean, this is great data. Whenever the coders at our hospitals here in the U.S., they come over and say, hey, can you code whether this patient has mild, moderate, or severe malnutrition? And they send me the <laughs> and I get pissed off that I have to code all the stuff. That I guess it's very important to yes. put this in the notes so you can, we can do some research and, and follow the data on it. My next question for you is what can be done to reverse or to improve the numbers to eventually decrease healthcare costs? So what can be done can be done at a different, different level. First, before um, I would like to tell you that also part of our data was doing a social determinants of malnutrition that will be published hopefully in two to three days. <laughs> We're hoping this. It's a new article that specifically malnutrition in hospital is not only related to the disease state. We have shown that it is related to social determinants that also predicted malnutrition in the hospital, not only in the community. So in our a very interesting data, hopefully we can do another podcast about it if you want, because this is another approach about malnutrition and specifically in settings like our county where the economic crisis is hitting very hard. We have very low level of food insecurity and so on. But this is talking at a very high level, but at a, at a lower level of what, what can, we, can be done to decrease malnutrition in hospitals. What studies have shown, and from the UK specifically, that screening is very important. So first, we have to know who's at risk and who's not at risk. Specifically, that uh, the ratio of dietitian to patient is very low. So I can, you notice from you, where you work, even in Lebanon, so uh, one dietitian is for two to three wards, for example. She may be responsible of up to 100 patients. She cannot see them all. So she needs someone should help in the screening system. It's very important to know that in the JCI, Joint Commission International Accreditation Standards, it was one of the biggest struggles. I worked for it for the Ministry of Public Health, that even in our Lebanese hospital standards, now it is mandatory to do screening for nutritional status. So it's a mandatory thing. So once we, have, we are aware that we have patients who are at risk, the second is what is the GLIM criteria trying to do is to have a unified diagnosis because when physicians are asked to write an ICD code, or they need to know exactly how they should look for malnutrition. They shouldn't be feel that is something that is not clear for them. So this is, and the third, there should be awareness, not only for dietitians, for physicians, for nurses, that malnutrition is there and it can affect the whole patient's outcome and it can send the whole healthcare cost. So awareness is the biggest thing, one. Second is of course, how can we treat malnutrition in hospitals? It can be worked not only on assessing, so we assess it, what can we do now? And this is what we are trying to do in Lebanon as next step, hoping that this data can help a lot despite the situation. So we are trying to improve having nutritional support for these patients, okay? so. A hospital diet should be a good diet, of course, but sometimes it's not enough. Oral nutrition supplements that are sometimes called in other uh, countries like ready-to-feed or ready-to-sip drinks, these are drinks that the patient can have with his food that increase their calories. They are tailored very well to have good protein, good vitamins that are tailored to have a good palliative taste, and they are very important to be uh, given to patients. 
What is the problem in Lebanon and other counties? They are not reimbursed, so the patient has to pay them out of pocket. So these are extra expenses. Although they are much needed, like a medication, they are there to treat the patient's malnutrition. This is one. So they are expensive for some patients. They are not um, reimbursed. The same apply for the states. For in the Europe, they are reimbursed. And second is that sometimes they are not uh, they are not given in the right way. So they are not given prescribed right. They should be uh, prescribed with importance. This is as important as your food, as important as your uh, medication. There was a very nice initiative done by Canadian physician, they offered it with the pills. So instead of drinking water, they drank a small amount of this oral nutrition supplement. And this is uh, one. And of course, having um, a good indications of when to start enteral nutrition, when to start parenteral nutrition on these patients. You know that patients are kept MTO in the hospital for very long time. And sometimes something can be done to decrease the time they are spent without food. And the limitations are done for no reason. And at the higher level, there should be policies and there should be policies uh, to have a special uh, reimbursement for the malnutrition diagnosis. So when you put it as a diagnosis in the patient's chart, it should help in reimbursement of some medication, reimbursement of some treatment done in the hospital and to decrease the healthcare costs. And there was a very interesting study done by the UK Malnutrition Task Force that showed that the cost of this enteral, parenteral nutrition and oral nutrition supplement is much less than the cost of not treating malnutrition. So you pay to give this patient the supplement they need, but the cost is much less than if you leave the patient malnourished because it will lead to more, longer hospital stay, more complication, more use of antibiotics, surgical uh, wound adhesions, and so on. So the cost is much higher than just giving a simple uh, enriched food or oral nutrition supplement, or in some cases, enteral or parenteral nutrition. Right. And so in, in Lebanon, probably it's the two factors, I guess, just the patients with, with chronic diseases and coming to the hospitals with malnutrition related to the inflammatory condition that they have, but also there's probably a social determinant part that's playing a role yes. too at the same time. Yes, of course. And this is why in our study, this is the first part that was published, the major one, the prevalence, of course. The second part of our study that we are, uh, it's now in, a re, uh, in the final review process of the article, and we show the social predictors. We, we, took, we did an extensive uh, survey with the patients asking about their uh, income level, employment level, education level, urbanization where they live, what is their healthcare coverage, uh, what is the level of food security, uh, it means we had a specific tool used of how they feel the food at home. Do they have enough food? Do they have enough quality of food? Do they have enough money to buy food? So, and it showed how correlated it is. So it's not only the disease itself that explains this malnutrition, also their social background can explain it. So that's why when you want to deal with malnutrition in hospital, and interestingly, it was uh, recommended by Healthy People 2030, the big initiative of WHO talking about malnutrition in hospitals specifically saying that usually the clinician have something that we call the downstream approach. We are so focused on the disease and how to treat it and what to give to help them that we forget what they call the upstream approach. There are factors that are outside the patient's control that we need also to target. So what is his um, economic level? Where does he live? Does he have access to food? Can you help him in having access to food? 
I gave him a prescription of oral nutrition supplement. Can he buy it? Will he drink it? And so on. So these other factors should also be part of our thinking, even as a clinician, not even as a policy level, like just helping in the bigger. Also on, on an individual level, we should take care of these factors when we are trying to treat our patients. Right, but at policy level, it's also important, I guess, because then you can get companies to pay for the required, let's say, nutrition supplements that the patient needs after they leave the hospital. Exactly. This is what we are trying now to do. So the first step that we did is having the nutrition screening mandatory in Lebanese hospital standards. And now we're working in, again with the Ministry of Public Health and the, our parent minister is a very cooperative minister. We are trying to work on how can we reimburse it? Because in Lebanon, it's not only the oral nutrition supplements that are not reimbursed, also enteral nutrition is not reimbursed. So imagine the patient is on a tube feeding and at the end of the day, he has to pay for his own enteral feeding. So we need to work on, on the reimbursement issue by, as you mentioned, the uh, that is very important, changing the pol- changing in the policies, in our national policies. Actually, that's interesting because I worked in Lebanon for a couple of years and I did not know that entering nutrition was not reimbursed. So you just yes. information. So a lot of us don't know that, I guess, when you discharge the patients. Yes, yes, exactly. And he will pay it out of pocket when he's uh, discharged from the hospital, no matter what is his insurance, even if he's on a private insurance company. Yeah, so great. So it's good that you're on the on the on the Lebanese order of dietitians and nutritionists because that way you can try you guys can try to impact policy from that standpoint. So we talked about I think one of your studies about the social determinants. Uh, yes. Any other future studies on the topic or future directions that you're going to go with? Yes. So now we are hoping uh, two two big projects. Hoping for them, and before one one small project is I need to defend and finish my PhD in one month. So once I'm done with this, <laughs> hopefully, I will be moving to doing two big things. So one is the national surveillance. We are trying to open like a national surveillance system for hospital malnutrition, like having the data unified that's obliging all hospitals, to, since now we have the mandatory screening, to do at least the screening, so at least to have number of who's at risk in malnutrition, and to collect this data the national surveillance so we don't have it a lot even we don't have cancer surveillance but we are trying to have this malnutrition surveillance and the second step is now we did the study on adults so the second research will be on pediatric of course and with the same structure like having it in different districts and different hospitals and having with it of course the social aspect not only the clinical aspect great work is and do, do you have any final words for us today Yes, of course I do, but I uh, I don't have anything to add anymore on this study. Thank you so much for allowing me to talk about it. Uh, first, it's uh, it's like a baby for me because my second baby, because my first baby is now sleeping just next to me uh, because it's my PhD. But um, I, I would like to highlight that I, I, I'm a clinician first. I, I have never planned to do, be a researcher or an academic, but... Uh, working with my nutrition, I felt the need to, to do something, to publish something. And I started the research and then everybody around me and I thank them with uh, do a PhD out of it, don't make it just a study. I thank everyone who put me on this uh, pathway because now I love more and more research. And second, I really would like, so thank you so much for allowing me to talk about it because this is a topic 
it's really very very important to me sorry to the extent that sometimes when everybody sees me in any conference or in any social they told me oh are you coming here to talk about my nutrition i think no one wants to hear about <laughs> see my face anymore uh, because this is all what i talk about it comes with me and uh, second i really, really want to thank your initiative of doing this lebanese physician podcast even if you are now outside lebanon and in the u.s because these small in the, these that pay, may people may consider small have a very high impact Okay, so like we said now, even small initiatives can do a big impact. So, um, and from what I heard from around me, from our residents, from um, uh, our some of our physicians, our medical students, they they follow you, they listen to you. So um, it's like a breath of air in the in the difficult situation we are going through. So uh, specifically as healthcare professional, we are struggling to survive. I think what is keeping us. Uh, Going in a country is simply the passion for the job. That's it. Nothing else because it can keep you doing what you are doing. So and um, and people like you are also very passionate. I can see from your podcast. So and this is what we need. Just because because sometimes us here we get very tired. So we need someone to to bring back a bit of energy and passion. So thank you so much for doing what you do. Really, and thank you for also doing it in a multidisciplinary way, and not only physician, because we also we try to, we try to show that we are also important in the in the healthcare. Yeah, you don't <laughs> have to try. I, mean, I, I think everybody everybody is important in the healthcare. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we as other healthcare professionals, not only dietitians. Yes. Right, 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 right. And uh, so, thank you, Christelle, for yes. being on the podcast, and thanks for all you do. And uh, and thanks for actually staying in Lebanon and, and keeping up the fight and uh, trying to thank you. over there. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. So uh, hope uh, I will be listening to other podcasts. I will be following you. So looking forward to. Thank you.